Teaching meditation can be a deeply rewarding experience. Help others improve their mental and emotional well-being, reduce stress, improve focus, increase self-awareness and self-regulation, all while deepening your own practice and understanding. Join acclaimed author, Buddhist teacher, and Emmy Award-winning musician David Nickturn on Tuesday, May 28th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time for a free online discussion on teaching meditation in Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation, lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash be here now for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn on May 28th. I'm Rachel, the creative director for Ram Dass's Love Server Member Foundation, and I'd like to welcome you to our Inner Academy, a virtual Dharma hall where our family of wisdom teachers will help you navigate your daily life by bringing ancient wisdom into a modern context. With over 200 hours of audio and video teachings, meditations, and practices from teachers like Ram Dass, Krishna Das, Sharon Salzberg, Jack Kornfield, Roshi Joan Halifax, Joseph Goldstein, and many more, the Inner Academy is your core resource for finding balance, presence, and navigating the ups and downs of your daily life. The Inner Academy has guidance for every step of your journey. Choose from an annual or monthly membership and gain access to past and future courses, retreat replays, virtual community, and much more. If you've been familiar with Love Server Member Foundation for a while, you'll know that most of our offerings are given freely or on a sliding scale basis. So when you subscribe to the Inner Academy, you're paying it forward and bolstering our ability to continue creating accessible offerings for all in the future, as Ramdas wished for us to do. Be here now and start your journey with Ramdas's Inner Academy today. For more, visit ramdas.org forward slash Inner Academy. Welcome to Dale Borglum's Healing at the Edge. We are very happy to share with you Dale's profound insight and open heart. Please go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Dale to support this podcast. We'll be working with being a compassionate caregiver and conscious dying. So as you know, I'm the director of the Living Dying Project. And mostly what we've been talking about during these meetings is the living part. We've been talking about the meditative path, the spiritual path, all the way from motivation to embodiment to mindfulness to compassion to other heart qualities. And last week, the path of Tantra. In a way, in a, not in a morbid way, but all this practice we're doing is preparation for dying well. All this is preparation for, in that moment, when we're finally taking our last breath, will we be awake in that moment, or will we be pulling back in fear, confusion, whatever it might be. And certainly there are stories, for instance, like Gandhi being assassinated, whereas as he was dying, as he was suddenly unexpectedly shot in the chest, he was falling over. He was saying God's name, Ram, Ram, Ram. He wasn't saying, oh, my God, what happened to me? Or when the Kennedy got a bullet to his head, he probably wasn't. He probably was not saying the rosary. He was probably saying, what the hell was that? Right. So that Gandhi was able to do that because he had been practicing. He had been saying Ram, Ram. He was doing his mantra all the time and getting shot was one more moment of Ram. He had a, a very tantric relationship with his experience. Today, we're going to talk about how to bring our practice to that moment of the end of life. It would be nice to imagine that at the end of life, you're in your bed and the people you love are around you and people are chanting spiritual things and you're feeling pretty good. But it may be that when you are dying, you are in an automobile. And the person you love the most in the world is seated next to you screaming in terror. It may be that when you're dying, you're lying on the floor of the local CVS pharmacy, 
and a stranger is ripping your shirt off and breathing in your mouth. It may be when you're dying that there's so much morphine in your bloodstream that it's almost impossible to focus your mind. So that in a way, practice isn't just about those more refined states of clarity and, and heart, but even when things are spinning out of control, even when we're really exhausted or, or when we're sick or when we're confused, can we bring mindfulness and heartfeltness to that? The, the qualities might not, not be as strong, they might not be as clear, but every moment is open to awareness. Every, open, every moment is open to compassion. One of the most direct ways in my experience to cultivate this preparation for dying and to deepen our practice is to learn to work with physical pain. So far, what we've been talking about in these groups is mostly working with mental and emotional pain. We just talked about anger. We've been talking about fear uh, a few weeks ago. Certainly, these are important things to learn to work with, but the mind is so manipulative. The mind is so seductive. Most of the people in this room have very, maybe everybody has very sophisticated minds. Most of us have been to college. Most of us have made livings by being able to make subtle distinctions and categorizations. All that sophistication is useful in one way, but to the extent we get attached to that, and we believe that, it makes it difficult to do deeper spiritual work. In my own experience as a, as a recovering mathematician, I will say that intellectualism is one of the most difficult spiritual illnesses to heal and to work with, to go beyond being attached to the mind. Where I live in Marin, there's a bumper sticker that says, don't believe everything you think. Okay. And it's hard not to believe the mind. And it's particularly hard not to believe certain parts of the mind, like the superego that says you're not doing well enough, you're lousy at this or that. We tend to believe those, those thoughts. The mind is seductive and it lies a lot to us. It's trying to protect, the ego structure is trying to protect its own existence, which is a difficult job because it really doesn't exist. But the body doesn't lie. The body is telling you what's going on. In fact, even the word emotion, emotion, moving energy, emotion is just energy moving in the body in a very direct, real way. In my spiritual practice, a lot of my lessons have been learned by training to be with the pleasant and unpleasant in the body without getting lost in it. In the West, the medical community has had a very hard time quantifying physical pain because, in my humble opinion, there is a conflating of pain and fear of pain. And what's often being medicated is at least as much the fear of the pain as the pain itself. Particularly at the end of life, which will become more clear as we're talking about this, but really in general, it's a shame to be overly medicated because medication often dulls consciousness. And at the end of life, we'd like to be there. We'd like to be able to be with the people that love us. We'd like to be there with our own consciousness leaving the body as much as possible. If we're taking drugs to deal with the fear, it will tend to inter interfere with being present. And my view is take the drugs you need for the pain, but take the meditation you need for the fear of pain. We're, we're distinguishing here between pain and suffering. One can experience physical pain and not have suffering. My son, who was in his bed there, and I kicked him out of the room so we could have this, this group. Uh, here's a brief story, and I don't remember if I told this in the last few weeks. Maybe I did, maybe I didn't. But he and his mother and her parents and I were in Maui a number of years ago. 
In fact, it was 2008. I remember that because it was just as the economy was beginning to collapse and I still had some money. <laughs> okay. And the women were off shopping and I was there with Declan and his grandfather, Fred, who died earlier this year. Declan was running around in this cemented area. He, he tripped, he fell down and he scraped his knee. It was not bleeding. There was an abrasion. He fell down, he hit the cement, he was kind of shocked, he started crying. He came running to me, expecting me to do what his mother would do, which is say, oh, Declan, that must be, oh, that's so bad, let me hold you, let me comfort you. For some reason, I just had the clarity to say, Declan, looking at your knee, it looks okay, you're going to be fine you're good to go. And he was kind of shocked that I didn't do what he expected. And he realized that he was okay, that he was still reacting to something, something that happened 20 seconds ago. And he let go of all of it and started playing again. It was really clear to me that for many of us, and his mother is a very comforting, wonderful mother. I'm not saying that at all. But for many of us, we're conditioned to see physical pain as an emergency and the more we make a fuss about it, the more comfort we hope to get from those who would be giving the comforting. Is it possible to just be with the sensations without labeling it as an emergency? We don't start with a big, huge pain. But even right now, as we're sitting together, and we will do a pain meditation in a few minutes, is it possible to, be, to just notice the pleasant and unpleasant sensations in your body without having to react, without labeling it as good or bad, but here's what's going on in the body. I had a cavity earlier this year. There was a decay under a crown. They had to take the crown off and and then drill on a live nerve. And the dentist said, we're going to give you a shot. And I said, I don't want the shot. And she said, oh, this is going to hurt a lot. And I said, I know, but I, I'd rather not have the shot. She tried to talk me into it. I kept saying no. And finally, she called in her husband, who was a larger dentist. And he, <laughs> he was looming over me and saying, you've got to take the shot. I said, no, no, it's okay. I'll, de I'll deal with it. She drilled on my tooth for less than a minute. It was really unpleasant. I relaxed, unpleasant sensation, and it was done. I didn't have the needle in the gum. I didn't have the chemicals in my bloodstream. And I didn't talk like that for the rest of the afternoon, right? I'm not saying you should do that. But during meditation, you might explore sometimes saying, I'm going to set a timer and I'm not going to move for 30 minutes, no matter what it feels like in my body, and just explore what that's like. And other times, you can give yourself permission to move whenever you want to move, okay? But at times, at least, not moving. First time I really got into longer meditation was with this teacher, Goenka, in India, where we would do these 10-day retreats that were very intense. There was no walking. It was just sitting on a cushion 16 hours a day. He did this thing called the vow hour, where for an hour you vowed not to move. And after about 30 or 40 minutes, my meditation was not screaming meditation. There's like so much pain in my right knee, I could almost not bear it. And I just, I just learned to sit there and be with discomfort. Now, that's not, that could sound kind of masochistic, but it really brought home a very deep lesson that we don't have to be so reactive to what we like and don't like. There was no permanent damage done. And in fact, at a later retreat with a different teacher, he did a guided meditation that let all that pain just flow out of my right knee and it never came back again, which very much surprised me because I thought that this Danish body trying to do these Hindu postures, my short little legs, was why I had so much pain. But, but really, with a certain way of being in my body, all the pain just left. There are many experiments that begin to show the nature of physical pain. I'll mention a couple of them. In one of them, Dr. Stan Groff was funded by the National Institutes of Health, our federal government, to give 
LSD to people with, quote, terminal cancer, unquote, as a way of dealing with fear of pain as a psychotherapeutic, a psychedelic assisted psychotherapy, working with fear of pain. And it was very successful. But what they found out that really surprised them was after these three guided sessions, that many of these people experienced the highly significant reduction in the need for pain medication, even though LSD has absolutely no pain-relieving properties. So why was that? Well, if I think I'm 5 feet 80 inches tall and weigh 170 pounds, and X amount of pain is bouncing around inside of me, that can be a really big problem. But if I have another experience that leads me to believe that I'm the whole universe and X amount of pain is there, I don't have to be afraid of it anymore. Pain is just pain. Pain doesn't need to be suffering. Stephen Levine famously said, pain is mandatory, suffering is optional. And whether that's physical pain or emotional pain or mental pain, being in a physical body, being having a human incarnation involves pain. There will be pain, <laughs> but does there need to be suffering? In another experiment, there are people also who had quote-unquote terminal cancer, and they were, take, they were on a rather high dose of morphine, and instead they were put on a, a relatively low dose of morphine in conjunction with a muscle relaxant and an antidepressant, and they could do just as well they could have just as effective pain relief with a much lower dose of the morphine. So they were not, they, they didn't have nearly as many opioids in their bloodstream. They were able to be more present. And it was as if the, the muscle relaxant and the antidepressant were in some way a chemical analog of pain meditation, right? So those drugs were dealing with the fear. And you didn't need much morphine then to deal with the pain itself. I'm not saying to try to create pain. I'm saying when there is pain there, can you learn to have a different relationship with it? And certainly if you have ex pre-existing physical conditions where being still for too long is not good for you, that's a whole other thing. I'm just trying to encourage having a different relationship with unpleasant sensations, that very often we have an automatic or an almost automatic unconscious relationship to anything that is unpleasant, whether it's an emotion, a thought, or a physical sensation. And for most of us, learning to train ourselves to not be so automatic is at least initially most easily done in working with physical sensation. Yes, if you have to get up every half hour and move around, go right ahead and do it. But during that half hour, there are still going to be unpleasant sensations in your body. And I would even suggest that maybe the reason you have to get up and move around is because instead of being with the sensations during that half hour, there's an unconscious resistance. There's a tightening. There's a, a pushing away the sensations because you don't like them. And to the extent we can use the sensations as the inspiration for opening our hearts to our bodies, opening our awareness to our lives, then the sensations are actually the, the pointing toward healing. And these sensations are in the body for a reason. Everything that's arising is the healing path. The sensations aren't a distraction from the path. They are the path. The Buddha had a bad back, supposedly, from meditating too much. Or at least that's, that's the way the story goes. But what I am saying is that occasionally when you're meditating, in a way that's way before you're getting masochistic, instead of immediately moving when you feel something unpleasant, can you begin to notice Unpleasant sensation arising, the uh, reaction, the almost automatic reaction, I should scratch, I should shift, I should do something like that almost immediately to not feel those sensations. There may be pain. There very likely might be pain when you're dying. 
And if you still have a personality where as soon as pain arises, something closes down like that and there's resistance, it's going to be that much harder to fully utilize the wonderful spiritual opportunity that the dying process offers. Let me tell a story about, about Stephen Levine and pain. In fact, two Stephen Levine stories. He and I started doing this. He started, I joined Stephen, and we taught together back in the 1970s. The first story is that Stephen got a, uh, he got kidney stones, and we were living in Santa Cruz. Kidney stones are supposedly the most painful thing a man can experience. Maybe that's not quite up there with childbirth, but it's really super painful. So Stephen was told that if you drink a lot of chamomile tea, that can dissolve the kidney stones and you don't have to have surgery. So he drank a lot of chamomile tea. It didn't work. So he finally decided to go to a, a urologist. And the urologist had two nurses who were both in the meditation group that Stephen and I facilitated. Maybe that's why he chose that urologist, I would guess. And as he came in the door to the office, both nurses said, oh, Stephen, that must be terrible. That must be so painful. And so they, both of them projected their fear of pain onto him. And the first thing that happened as he walked in the door is he said, oh, the nurses are projecting their fear of pain onto me. Then he goes in to see the doctor. And one of my great failings in life is that I, I cannot do accents too well. But it turned out that the doctor was German and Stephen is Jewish and the the doctor had a fairly thick German accent and he had a picture of Stephen's urinary tract up on the up on the light box there and he had his pointer knife and he's saying we should go here and here we should cut and you know I'm not I'm not doing it too humorously, but Stephen doing the German accent was pretty hilarious. And so the doctor was saying, I, I want to go in her and cut you open. And Stephen's thinking, yeah, I'm not so sure I want to do that. So the doctor says, well, at least take these drugs. And he gave Stephen some analgesic medication. Stephen took the drugs. He went home. He, he popped the drugs. And his experience after taking the drugs was a great increase in his experience of pain because the drugs were strong enough to dull his awareness. He couldn't keep relaxing and being with what was going on, but they weren't strong enough to really cut through the pain. So not only did he have the pain, but he now had increased resistance to the pain. Wasn't that interesting that in taking the pain, medication, he felt more pain. There's another story where Stephen's son, Noah, you've heard of Noah Levine. He had his own Vipassana scene down in LA and Noah was playing on an abandoned car in New Mexico when we were living in New Mexico. And he slid down the windshield of the, the car and the wiper blade mechanism went under his skin and up his leg. So it was like, six or eight inches under the skin. It's like really painful and nose like howling in pain. Stephen and Andrea lived quite a distance from a hospital. They had to take Noah to the hospital. He was just like frantic with pain. Andrea started driving. Stephen got in the back seat with Noah and he started guiding him in the pain meditation. And in 10 minutes, Noah fell asleep. The end. <laughs> so what we're going to do, we're going to do a pain meditation. And that means that you have to feel some pain to do the meditation. And what I would like to suggest is that at some point, as a very obvious point early in the meditation, if you cannot find some pain in your body that's there in an ongoing way, then take a couple of fingers and just gently bend them back so you feel ongoing unpleasant sensation. So we will do this pain meditation. Please find a comfortable sitting position. Bring your attention into your body. Just settle into your body. Become aware of the process of breathing.
And now let your awareness scan from the top of your head down to your feet and see if you can find a place in your body where there are relatively continuous unpleasant sensations. It doesn't have to be a sharp, horrible pain, but just the place where there's tension from sitting, or maybe you have an injury or an illness. Maybe there's just tension in your face around your eyes, tension in your shoulders, tension in your lower back or your belly. Finding some place in your body where there are ongoing unpleasant sensations. And if you can't find that place, then do the finger bending trick. Take two or three fingers, bend them back just to the point of unpleasant sensation. And initially, I would ask you to relate to these unpleasant sensations as if they are the enemy, as if something they are something that you don't want to feel, pain as enemy, pain as threat, pain as problem, scratching your shoulder. Try to, try to keep your body as still as you can during this meditation so you can really be with the sensations. What is it like when you are relating to unpleasant sensation to physical pain as the problem? Does suffering arise? Is there a tightness? Does your heart close to this part of your body? In fact, does closing to one part of yourself close yourself a bit to all of yourself? Could you have this relationship with pain all day long without getting tired? Does this relationship with your body interfere with your ability to heal, to love, to be present? Pain is enemy, pushing away the pain, almost as if you're setting up a, a barrier between where the pain is and your brain, wanting to not feel the sensations, but there they are. Pain is enemy, pushing away. Feel what this does to you, what it does to your heart. And now we're going to change our relationship very dramatically with these sensations, letting go of having any notion that they're a problem, but beginning to be very clearly aware of what, your, what the sensations are, becoming curious about the sensation. Is there a changing quality to the sensation? Is it possible even to have a heartfelt relationship with these sensations? That your relationship with sensation is inspiring you to open your heart even a bit more so that you can be spacious in relationship to what you're feeling right now. These sensations just arising and floating in the vast spaciousness of the heart. The merciful heart, the kind heart, Could you have this relationship with difficult sensations, unpleasant sensations, without getting exhausted? Would this relationship with sensation prevent you from loving, from healing? Can you keep being with these sensations, having a softening relationship? Often in the body, the word softening is a great somatic equivalent to compassion, softening. Imagine that this part of the body is softening. Your relationship with this part of your body is softening. Your heart softening and opening. No longer is pain a threat or a problem. Not something that we have to automatically push away letting the heart be more and more spacious, 
sensations floating in heart space, no resistance. Are you the space or are you the sensations? Who is it that's really experiencing these sensations? Letting our relationship with physical sensation bring us more fully into a spacious, heartfelt, deeply clear relationship with our moment-to-moment changing experience. And then coming back to just being with your breath, being in your body as a whole, and coming back into this room. If you are somebody who works with people who are suffering, having this pain meditation as a tool is a wonderful way to form or deepen relationship with someone. It's difficult to come into someone's room, hospital room that you've never met and say, I hear you're dying, do you want to talk about it? But if you come into the room and say, I hear you're in physical pain, uh, would you like to not be in so much pain? I have never met somebody who said no to that question. So you work with the pain meditation, you form a deepening relationship, deepening trust. And then after a few meetings with this person, then maybe you can talk about dying. Pain is not one monolithic blob. It's it's really constantly changing set of sensations that are happening. These nerves are firing, and you can begin to feel the changing nature. It's, as Lori was saying, it's more diffuse. It's not like this this hard, solid thing that you've got to fight with. It's just something that's, that's changing all the time. The first thing I'd like to say about conscious care, caregiving, of course, what we do here is the Living Dying Project trains volunteers to work with people who are dying. We have in-person trainings here in the Bay Area. There's also an online training that is mentioned very prominently on the homepage of our website, And we have volunteers all around the world. We have volunteers in China, Australia, Italy, Scandinavia, all around Canada, all around North America, all around the United States. We obviously don't find clients for people who are far away, but we have support meetings for those people. So if you're interested in doing this work as a conscious caregiver, compassionate caregiver, and being a Living Dying Project adjunct volunteer, you could take our training. Even if you don't take the training, we're going to go into that a bit more deeply right now. And the way my feeling about caregiving is that that caregiving is work on yourself. It's only secondarily about helping the other person. And I know that might sound at first blush a bit self-centered, but I've been working with a lot of people who are on the front lines of healthcare, the emergency department in San Francisco General, the palliative care department at, at San Francisco General or St. Francis Hospital, the COVID support unit at San Francisco General. And as long as people are focused really on helping, they tend to miss the signals of burnout. They get ungrounded, uncentered. They start fighting the sensations in their body in the way that we've just been talking about. Whereas if you're doing this as your own practice, you become more present, you become more open-hearted. And then secondarily, you're there with the other person. You're not getting lost in unconscious reactivity. Beyond that, the deepest healing happens not from what we say, not from what we do, but who we are particularly if we're talking about working with dying people, you can say all the right things. You can take our training. You can train with Frank Frank Ostaseski and Joan Halifax and God herself. And if, in fact, you have not come to that place in your own life, that you're not really imparting 
that it's possible to go beyond fear of death. If if you are talking about being free and being open, but it's coming from a place of I'm doing this and I'm caught in my own fear of death, what is the what is the message this other person is getting? They're getting the message, look, I'm in the body that's dying and this other person's not even dying, but they're still afraid. What does that mean for me? I should be more afraid than they are because I'm the one that's dying here. Whereas if you are in, in this really wide open space, you can be telling, do, doing stand-up comedy and not talking about God at all. And it's going to be transmitted that this is a workable situation. Yes, there might be human suffering here. Yes, there might be sadness and humanity and all this stuff happening. But it's all contextualized in the spaciousness that we are. Many of the people, particularly the ones who are really on the front lines of healthcare, have have found that what we were talking in this group about several weeks ago, becoming embodied, working with grounding and centering, being in your body in a busy day. So like even Susan was talking about, she's there in a chair too much. If you're really consciously in a chair, if you're grounded, if you're centered, if you're in your posture, if you're not resisting your thoughts and your emotions and sensations, it's a very different way of being in your body than if you're lost in your mind and you're sitting in a chair. I'm not saying that's what you're doing necessarily, Susan, but I'm just saying that whether we're seated or, or standing or running around or being a caregiver at a hospital or at the bedside of a loved one, that to the extent that we keep coming back to being present and, and surrendering into the heart and even then opening into this tantric relationship with reality, that that, that that is the healing process for us that then is radiated to the people we're around. And I'm assuming that you're a really good psychologist and that people that I'm in my groups are really good doctors and nurses and therapists and whatever they might happen to be, that you know the stuff you know the intellectual part of it, that it really is more than about dropping into the body and being present. So that if you think about, say, Brezhnikov leaping on the stage or Willie Mays catching a fly ball, they aren't thinking about doing that. They are just embodied and trusting who they are, that they can run to where the ball is going to be without calculating angles and velocities in their mind. They just there's me, there's there's the trajectory, I'm just going there and put my arm up, right? And can we do that then with being with another human being? It's harder because of all, all of our conditioning. So what I would like to do is talk about what happens when somebody dies. Uh, and we're going to use dying in two ways. There's physical dying, which is what happens over a course of a few minutes when the heart and the brain stop. But there's also the spiritual dying process, which takes place over several days. Particularly if somebody's dying a, of a degenerative disease, it can begin days, if not a week or more, before somebody physically begins to die, is dying. And certainly continues for days after the person has physically died. So there's this physical dying process that is the consciousness leaving the body. I am assuming in this discussion that there is something that we are that is larger than the body and the personality that survives death. If you believe that you're only the body and the personality when you're, and when you, you die, that's the end of the sentence, that's the period at the end of life, then what I'm saying isn't going to make too much sense. But I'm coming here from the standpoint that Buddhism, Hinduism, Christianity, and most of the world's contemplative religions believe that there is some quality of soul or consciousness or presence that continues after we die. In fact, that the way we live goes a very long way in determining how we die, and how we die goes a very long way in determining what it is that happens next. So that in, in a very immediate sense, how you and I are relating to this moment right now of us being in front of our computers, and we're spread all over the planet having this conversation, 
that this is in in a very non-morbid sense preparation for dying how much are we lost in our minds how much are we struggling and how much like that pain meditation are we just being with what is going on opening to it how much is this preparation for dying and how much are we needing to control to be in charge in a way all of what we've been talking about over these weeks, and particularly what we're going to talk about next week, which is non-duality, which is beyond practice, is preparation for dying. Because basically, my view is that we die into pure consciousness. That right now, there are two things going on. We're pure consciousness, we're pure presence, we're completely awake. And then there's this human dimension where we think, I'm Dale, and you're not Dale, and that I'm a man, and you're whatever you are, and I'm this age, and you're that age, and all these distinctions. And that level is true, too. And at that level, you're going to die, and I'm going to die. But as we are having this conversation, what is it that isn't changing? What is it that is not dying? Every moment, things are changing, things are dying. Is there something that's constant, moment to moment? a level of pure consciousness, pure awareness that I believe doesn't die. And that's that's the non-dual, non-practice we'll be talking about next week. In a way, caregiving, or even by extension, life itself, is about finding this balance between honoring the humanity that does suffer, that does die, that does have a body, a body that's finite, a body that feels pain, a personality that suffers, and the spiritual context for this whole thing, where there is no suffering, that we are whole already, that enlightenment is not something to be found because it's already pre-existing, that all we have to do is let go of assumptions, that we are totally conscious and awake right now, and that you can do nothing, I can do nothing, but be fully present in the moment. Even if we're thinking about the past or we're all neurotic, it's all happening in the present. There's nothing that happens but consciousness meeting the present experience. And that's what we're going to be. That's this non-duality, Dzogchen, Advaita Vedanta. But that is very important because it's the preparation for dying. In a way, each moment is preparation for dying. This moment, how much in this moment are we fully surrendering into the next moment? If we think about it, there's these these two dimensions. There's the human dimension where you and I are going to eventually die. We suffer. We identify with body and personality. And there's another dimension where we're whole, where things are not changing. What is it that doesn't change from moment to moment? And to the extent that we're resting in the wholeness, then all this change is just another moment of that. It's not something we have to be fighting or even trying to understand. The Bible talks about the peace that passes understanding. What is that peace? How can we find that peace that even though we have a body that changes and a mind that changes and we've got financial issues and personality issues and and relationship things going on and all this stuff is happening, what is it that's not changing? What is it that's whole? What is it that doesn't die? Stephen Levine wrote a book, Who Dies? Very good question. Okay. The body dies, the personality dies. Is there something that doesn't die? Or even in a more immediate sense, what is it that's not changing from moment to moment? Is there a level of consciousness that doesn't change from moment to moment? There are certain activities, there are certain practices to prepare for dying. They are mentioned prominently on the Living Dying Project website. One of them is called the Ah Breath. Another is called Powa. These are both coming from Tibetan Buddhism. The awe breath is simply guiding somebody who's approaching death and being with them. And it's explained in much more fullness on the website. I'll just give you a brief preview. 
there's the helper, there's the person who's approaching death. And as the person who's approaching death breathes out, the helper says, ah, ah. With each outbreath, you say, ah. You do this for 20 minutes or more. Ah is the sound of the open heart. In Rudolf Steiner's Eurythmy, the gesture that goes with ah is spreading your arms out wide. Basically, each time the person is letting go of breath, you're making the sound that encourages letting go into vast spaciousness. It's, it's a very powerful practice. There's another practice called POA, which is, can be done in great complexity. It, it's sort of part of the Tibetan Book of the Dead. I taught a workshop with Bob Thurman about the Tibetan Book of the Dead, and he's like this great scholar. And I started reading his take on things and threw up my arms in frustration. It was way too complicated for my PhD brain. <laughs> I, guess, oh, I couldn't deal with it all. POA is simply, here's the dying person, and you're visualizing them. And you know what form of the deity they might be attracted to. And you visualize that into the vicinity of the person that died comes this form of the deity that they would love Buddha or, or Jesus or the mother or whatever it might be. If you don't know, it could just be a generic being. So there's this being of radiant golden light, and there's the person who's died. And to the extent that you're really feeling this, that it's not just some pretty picture in your mind, but you're really, there you are with the deity and there you are with your dead friend, then so much the better. And out of the, uh, the, the deity comes a ray of golden light into the, your departed friend that purifies them of any remaining obscurations. And they then dissolve into a, a body of radiant golden light, which is made out of the same substance as this deity. And if you think about it, that's who they are already. It's not You're not visualizing something that's not there. You're visualizing reality. We are made out of radiant golden light. We are enlightened already. It's only our assumptions that leads us to believe other than that. And then very slowly, they, these two beings merge into one being. And then slowly, that one being dissolves into spaciousness. And traditionally, this is done every day for 49 days after somebody has died. When my mother died, I had hired a Tibetan Buddhist monastery to do this for seven weeks. So they got the money. My mother got the, the, the practice, and I got the blessings for being a good son, and everybody was happy. This is explained in much more de detail on our website, the Ah Breath. There, I've done a guided meditation of that. That's on the website. But I'd just like to say that there are some very specific practices for being with people before and after the moment of death. But what I would like to do is talk about my version of what happens when you die. You might not agree with this. You might find this a hopefully relatively entertaining 10 minutes or so, but it might be the most important part of all these weeks that we've spent together. This is basically taking the wisdom from the Tibetan Book of the Dead, the early Christian Book of the Dead, and the world's wisdom traditions and, and peeling away the differences that come from uh, a time and society and things like that. And going to the core message of what is, is uh, taught in terms about the spiritual dying process. There's a great deal of literature out there right now about near-death experiences. And the near-death experience is the first part of the dying experience. So let us talk about the near-death experience, and then we'll ex extend that to the dying experience itself. In the near-death experience, somebody temporarily dies, their consciousness begins to leave the body, it hovers around the body for a while, and then is attracted toward what is universally described as this incredibly attractive, clear light. It, it goes up to the light, but because it's only a near-death experience, 
karma or whatever seems to indicate that it's not time for this being to merge into the light. It hangs out around the light for a short period of time and then comes back into the physical body and the body is reawakened. Sometimes there are guides, sometimes there's a tunnel, sometimes there's not, but that's the basic near-death experience. And when people come back from a near-death experience, they say, say something like, I've had this remarkable experience. I'm no longer afraid of dying in the way that I used to be, and you don't have to be either. The problem here is that the person who's saying, the person who had the near-death experience was no longer identified with body and personality. And then the person comes back into the body, identifies with the personality, and says, you don't have to be afraid of death anymore. As long as you're identified with body and personality, death is a big problem. But as long as you're identified with pure consciousness, it's not. The part of this being that says death isn't a problem was somebody who's out there not identified with body and personality and comes back into identification and says it's not a problem. So you can see there can be a, a kind of a confusion there. But let's move beyond that and talk about the dying process itself. So now somebody actually dies. This first part is the same. So there are even stories, let me go back to the near-death experience. There are people that had near-death experiences, people that were blind all of their life. During the near-death experience, they could see what was going on. There's even stories like people who died on the operating table in a hospital, and as they died, their consciousness was attracted up to another room in the hospital where somebody was in a coma, and the person in the coma said to the dead person, hey, the doctors don't get it, it's my spleen. <laughs> and the, the dead person then doesn't, is revived, they, they, they don't die, it was only a near-death experience, they reawaken, and they say, by the way, the guy up in room 523, it's the spleen. And the doctors go up there, and sure enough, or they missed that it, it was the spleen, right? Something. With, I kind of made up the spleen part, but there are stories like that, okay? Or there are even stories about people being able to go outside. They're in a hospital room. They have a near-death experience. They go outside of the room, outside of the window, around the corner of the hospital, see something in another room, and are able to come back and report what it is that had gone on in this other hospital room. Near-death experiences are showing that consciousness is not really limited to the body. Now somebody actually dies. The first part of the process is exactly the same. Consciousness leaves the body, it hovers around the body for a while, and then is attracted toward what is described as this incredibly attractive light. And this light is so incredibly attractive because it is our true nature. We are that light right now, but because we are so identified with that which changes and that which dies, with our bodies and our personalities, we aren't enlightened, or at least we think we aren't. We're identified only with that which is changing and that which will die, not that which doesn't change and that which will not die. The first thing that happens after you die and began to happen in the near-death experience is that we rest in enlightenment. We rest in that which does not die. These contemplative religions say that this is the easiest time, the most propitious time in an extended lifetime in which to realize your true nature. You become enlightened shortly after you die. But the light that you're experiencing, according to, say, the Tibetan Buddhist, is as bright as a thousand suns. It's very bright. If you or I have not practiced resting in God's light, resting in pure consciousness, that light will probably be too bright, and we will pull back from resting in the brightness. So that in some way, what we're doing now through devotional practices, through meditation, through caregiving, through psychedelics, through whatever it is we're doing, how can we learn to bear the light? That in this moment, we are just as enlightened as we're going to be then. How much can we bear the light of 
what we're experiencing now. And in fact, when people take psychedelics, almost everybody has the experience that they experience the pure consciousness or light. It's something that's always there. It's not a result of taking the drug, that the drug shows what is there already, but because we're so identified with body and personality that we don't see it. It's not something that's not there that's produced by the drug. It's something that's always there that's revealed. And then we we have to go back and can we learn to rest in that without the aid of the drug? And taking the drug is a rather dangerous thing because it seems like the experience is a result of taking an external substance rather than who we are already. Somebody has died. The first thing that happens is they dissolve into this pure light. And if, in fact, you have practiced enough in your lifetime that you're comfortable in just being light, then you're done. You're enlightened. You've used the dying process as the, the, the gateway into pure light of nothing more to do. But if, in fact, the light seems to be too bright, how many times have you or I had an experience where you were really loving somebody or you're out in nature and it was the most remarkable thing or uh, there was a piece of music or the birth of a child or something where just this normal reality kind of folded open and you could just see the, the, the brilliance of consciousness itself. And you were with that and then all of a sudden a distracting thought came up, what's for lunch? <laughs> or how long is this going to last? I mean, I had that experience through meditation, through psychedelics, through being in nature. I was in this re these remarkable places. And my conditioning then would come and overwhelm the, the this openness. Because in th this openness is ego death. The ego saying, wait a minute, what about me? Here, let's, let's throw some fear in here so you remember that I exist. Somebody's died. They merge into the light. Can you stay in the light or is the light too bright? If the light is too bright, then the second stage of the dying process begins to happen. And that is our hopes, our fears, our desires begin to appear and we can see them for what they are or we can identify with them. So I will give a couple of made up, slightly humorous, but hopefully very instructive examples. You've died, you no longer have a body, and as you're there hanging out in the after-death experience, right behind you, you hear this uh, incredibly angry, ferocious, growling dog who sounds like he wants to bite your head off. Okay, you don't have a body, there's not a dog, but fear for your body is one of the things you're probably most strongly identified with. Fear arises. Do you buy into that? Do you say, oh, and do you unconsciously pull away in fear from that projection? To the extent you do something unconsciously, it creates further karma that has to be dealt with down the road, next lifetime, or whatever you want to call that. To the extent that you realize it's only your mind, let it come and let it go, that thing is done. You've just avoided a few lifetimes there by not buying into that fear. Example number two, you've just died. In the after-death state, trotting in front of you is the most attractive human being you could ever imagine that somebody who intellectually, physically, sexually, romantically, financially, every dimension is your complete desires manifest. There is that person. Because it's a perfect projection of your needs. It's, it's everything you think you want is there. Do you realize this is just a projection of your own mind and you let it go? Or do you go trotting over to this person and say, look, I'm really kind of busy right now dying, but I would like your phone number so when I'm done with this, you and I can get together. Okay, so that's kind of a joke, but that's kind so that you're walking down the sidewalk and there's a man walking in front of you and an attractive person is coming the other way and the guy almost, almost breaks his neck looking at that person. 
that's going to make it a little harder for him to die consciously. To the extent he sees that person, noticing a desire arises and lets it go, it makes it a little easier for him to die consciously. So that each moment is training in letting go into the light, realizing we are the light, we are enlightened. Here are these two examples, and all of our hopes and our fears, our desires are arising. Can we just let them go? Can we do that now in preparation for doing it in the, in the spiritual dying process? The first person I ever worked with who, who was dying was this young man named Chris who had, who had moved to Santa Cruz. Stephen and I, Stephen Levine and I were living in Santa Cruz. We had a Tuesday night meditation group. And this guy, Chris, he was a young man in his late 20s. He moved to Santa Cruz from Toronto. He had been a Canadian Broadcasting Corporation radio engineer, and he had advanced Hodgkin's disease. He was dying, probably, it seemed, and he, for no reason that he could think of, he moved to Santa Cruz and he came to our group. Actually, people in the group became the genesis for the hospice of Santa Cruz. The, the, the people in that group eventually founded the hospice. Anyway, there was Chris. And he was weaker and weaker because of his Hodgkin's disease. He was very frustrated by the fact that he could not be a sexual being, right? He was too weak. And it's not clear he had ever been sexual before. He seemed like pretty an asexual guy, but I had really only met him when he was pretty sick. So anyway, just as, as luck or karma would have it, I was at his bedside alone, the two of us, the night before he died, I, I drew the, the graveyard shift, shall we call it, right, from midnight to 6 or 7 a.m. Chris had not spoken or moved hardly at all for a day or two. He was in a semi-comatose state. I'm sitting there meditating in the middle of the night, and all of a sudden, Chris starts stirring. He's looking around the room, and a look of ecstasy comes on his face. And I think maybe he's dying and the heavenly host of angels have come to greet him. And I say, Chris, Chris, what do you see? He said, beautiful women wherever I look. Those were the last words that man ever spoke. He closed his eyes. It was pretty clear he was dying. The next morning, uh, Stephen and I called up the people in the meditation group. They gathered around Chris's bed. As he was approaching death, Stephen said to Chris, Chris, if you see beautiful women as you're dying, realize it's only a projection of your mind. You can trust the light, the love, the wisdom that you've cultivated. You don't have to buy into the seeming reality of those projections. And it seemed like those words deeply penetrated into Chris's being that he really heard those things. You know, sometimes you talk to somebody, it feels like it's kind of bouncing right off, and sometimes it goes in. If you know somebody well enough who's dying, you might give them some advice. When my Aunt Hannah died, who was a very elderly Danish woman, I said in my mind to her, Hannah, as you're dying, if you see some pile of dust in some corner of the tunnel of light, realize you don't have to stop and clean it up. Just keep on going, girl. <laughs> she was somebody that you could eat breakfast off of her kitchen floor, right? What we're saying here is then, if you haven't taken that first opportunity of just resting in the light, then you have the second opportunity to be enlightened when these projections, these hopes and fears are projected outward. And you see that it's just the mind. It's just attachment. You can just let it come and let it go. To the extent that you unconsciously push away the fear from the, the barking imaginary dog, project the dog, or grasp at the desire for the imaginary perfect person, you're creating karma that has to be dealt with somewhere down the road. And whether we believe in heaven and hell or reincarnation or Shirley MacLaine or whatever, it doesn't really make any difference. Let's not even talk about what happens next because that's all philosophy, if you will. But what we're saying is that you have this remarkable opportunity to let go of all kinds of karma as you're going through the dying process. And to the extent that you have meditated or prayed or done things to rest more in divine nature than being caught up in all the change, then one can go through the dying process in a way that, that prepares you for just being 
the light and resting in the light. We are the light right now in this virtual room. There is nothing you need to do to get enlightened other than let go of the assumption that you're not. There is not something to get that is not already here. All the contemplative religions say that. Christ says the kingdom of heaven is within you. And other quotes from Buddhism and Hinduism, and we could go on and on with that. In a way, working with dying is one of the best preparations for getting enlightened. One of my first meditation teachers said that until you come into uh, have an intimate relationship with death, your spiritual practice will have the quality of you being a dilettante. Because until you know you're really going to die, you can meditate and pray and say mantras and, and get calmer and have a slightly better personality structure. But the deeper fruit of the spiritual practice of letting go of identification of all this that is changing and dying and resting in your true nature isn't going to happen. The body dies, the personality dies. What is it that doesn't die? And is that something we can rest in right now?